get sick and tired of all these dogs, blah, blah, here, blah, blah, there, but nothing gets done. We're looking for gender parity, women at the highest level, because we need transformative decisions at that level. And, you know, all men together aren't going to make them. <laughs> it is uh, ridiculous that billions of people around the world lack access to safe drinking water, hygiene facility and sanitation facilities. This is The Lid Is On. I'm Connor Lennon. And I'm Laura Quinones. And we are into week two. It's Monday. How was your day off, by the way? Oh, my, off, my day off was great. What did you do? I went diving. How was it? It was, it was pretty nice. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. My God, that sounds so exciting. You know what I did? <laughs> you slept all day. I washed my socks. Yeah. <laughs> well, today was really busy, wasn't it? It was much more busy than expected. Huge queues outside. Yeah. And it was rammed. I was saying earlier, now that the Hard Rock Cafe have put a second burger bar in it, it's <laughs> like a, some kind of music festival at times. We're into the kind of the business end of COP now, aren't we? And we've been hearing these concerns about the 1.5 target. This is the target to keep temperature rises below 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. I didn't mm-hmm. explain that very well, but, you know, it's limiting the global temperature rise. And this 1.5 target really is at risk. There's another event taking place right now, the G20. This yep. is the meeting of the 20 biggest economies in the world. In Bali, Indonesia. In Bali, that's today. I think tomorrow as well, just a much shorter event. But all the big leaders are there right now. And our boss, the UN Secretary General, was there and he was talking about the danger of that 1.5 degree goal. He also made a case again for his Global Solidarity Pact, which is what we heard last week uh, was in his um, opening speech. He said that developing and developed countries uh, must work together and make a climate pact so that we can keep the 1.5 degree alive. That fear is clearly filtering through to many of the activists, the the protesters are here, the people who are really suffering and and will be suffering the most. I heard some of that anger a little earlier today. We're hearing stories left, right and centre that the world leaders are not really taking real good actions about loss and damage, but we are here to fight and we will keep fighting. You will see our tears of resilience and we will never give up because we will continuously fight. I am 30 years old, I am as old as cop is, and I'm tired of waiting. Tell them you need to pay up, you need to take action. I'm sick and tired of all these dogs, blah, blah, here, blah, blah, there, but nothing gets done. So we are here to ask you all and tell them, get something done. We need something solid. So a taste of uh, some activism this morning in the venue, not too far from our media centre. And uh, the person you heard speaking is a young man called Oyasi Tikoro, and he's representing the Pacific Youth Council. He's worried about backsliding on the part of government. And today there was also an informal stock take. Explain what that means. The COP presidency, which is uh, obviously the Egyptian government, he, he gives a, f- a few of the updates regarding the negotiations in an informal way, let's say it, uh, which still looks pretty formal to me in the plenary. But um, he said that he was confident that uh, by Friday that this COP was ending on time. You know, uh, COPs are known for... Uh, negotiations below that. Dragging on. Yeah, until the Saturday next day, but uh, he says he was very confident about having a decision uh, by Friday, and that those negotiations, uh, which started today, about the big, big political outcomes, like last week, uh, negotiations were more about, like, implementing technical technical things. Um, A lot of those things are still uh, not completed. Uh, He said that today, but... 
he said that he was going to put his facilitators to work, his coke facilitators to work, so to speed this up, and that by Wednesday, uh, this text, the draft text, should be should be almost completed. That he was going to use Thursday and Friday just to like, you know, fix it a little bit or finish the the last issues that are not um, that need to be discussed. That's pretty much what happened at the informal. Talk. It's fair to say that positivity about getting it all wrapped up is not shared amongst many of the people that we've been talking to. No, not really. I mean, um, lots of the activists obviously still talking about uh, loss and damage, the loss and damage um, fund, uh, which is still the thorny subject. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be until the last minute, probably the, the one item that they're going to be discussing about. And... Um, I mean, there are other things about what you just mentioned about the 1.5. Uh, some NGOs are denouncing that uh, they're trying to change the text that certain wealthy countries uh, so that it doesn't say 1.5, but below 2.0. Yes, so, and we're probably going to hear more tomorrow coming out of Bali from that, that G20 meeting yep. because we've been hearing rumors that some big economies are going to be trying to take that 1.5 reference out of their outcome document but and that could be quite significant so we'll we'll wait on that tomorrow and see okay. what happens well let's get back to today so the two get another twofer two themes water and gender well let's start with water water we know is going to be a big focus at the united nations next year there's a major water conference taking place at the end of march which comes right in the middle of a un decade on water and sanitation. The conference is co-hosted by the Netherlands and Tajikistan, two highly contrasting countries in many ways. And I got to speak to the two water envoys, Henk Ovink from the Netherlands and Sultan Rahimzoda from Tajikistan, both representing their governments. And I asked them what they are trying to achieve at the conference. For water, it is now or never. Water is a theme we find in climate, in energy, in food security in health, in economics and international collaboration. But water is organized in a very fragmented way and abused. So we lack water when we need it or we have too much water with floods and it's polluted, impacting our environment, our biodiversity, as well as human health and our economies. So what the conference will try to do is elevate water to an agenda it's not yet on, to ensure it gets the attention it deserves to drive actions across sectors, not only from water, but for food, for energy, for climate and the economy, to ensure that water can be a catalyst for sustainable development and climate action that it can be, but then we really have to change our behaviors, our attitude, our actions, our governance, and the way we organize around it. Everybody knows that water is source of our life, but it is also and the huge impact of the different challenges, including the growth, population growth, uh, climate change impact, uh, urbanization, and etc. We are facing a lot of challenges because of the climate change impact, glacier melting, we have a lot of floods, mud flows, uh, and even in some part of Tajikistan roads. Around 65% of population having access to safe drinking water and sanitation, which is basically the human rights. That is a problem of the many developing countries like Tajikistan. Not many mountains in the Netherlands, Henk. <laughs> no. Uh, famously yeah. flat yes. and uh, having to have dikes to keep yeah. the water out. Yeah. What are your main concerns? Is it, is it flooding? Is it the rising sea levels? It's the mix. 
and that is even challenging. Eh? The highest point we, we, we say in the Netherlands is the lowest point in Tajikistan. This partnership shows the world. If two countries that are so diverse and different share the same concern over water, then we can elevate it to the highest level. I actually think it is a shame and ridiculous that in 2022 and next year, 2023, billions, not millions, billions of people around the world lack access to safe drinking water, hygiene facility and sanitation facilities that are safe. That was the two envoys for the UN Water Conference taking place next year, Henk Ovink from the Netherlands and Sultan Ramzoda from Tajikistan. There was an initiative concerning water that was announced today by the COP presidency called AWARE. What was that about? It's about uh, pushing for water and adaptation investments for the most vulnerable communities and ecosystems around the world, but especially in Africa. So they will work on decreasing water loss and propose and implement new policies. And uh, all this is about adaptation, you know, because in the future uh, with the climate disasters like increasing, including droughts or even excessive floods, it's just like that's the other problem, right? Not having water, having too much water. Well, this program uh, will work on, on, on these points. This feeds into announcements made by the UN Secretary General early in the COP about early warning systems which could save millions of lives if people have a better awareness, of, for example, of when floods are coming or when there's going to be drought, then they can start making arrangements and hopefully improve the outcomes. Well, let's move on to gender. The issue of gender was uh, one of the main topics of the day. And if you remember right at the beginning of the COP, there was a, what they call a family photo and all the leaders gathered together and a few voices were raised. Hang on a minute. Where are the women? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, um, if I remember correctly, back in the UN General Assembly, only 22 women uh, were present. Uh, so it's still 22 out of the 193 countries. So, of course, of the countries who came out here who were over a little bit over 100, um, of course, the difference is just... It was like, where's pain, Wally? You painful. had to hunt for the women in the crowd. Yeah. It was not a good look at yeah. all. Yeah, I agree. And while talking about women in leadership, our DSG, our uh, Deputy Secretary General, uh, sent a special message today on a panel talking about the terrible drought in the Horn of Africa. And she puts the highlight, of course, on putting women in the lead as a solution. As food and water insecurity persist, women and girls are experiencing alarming levels of poverty and economic deprivation, increasing their vulnerability to gender-based violence. And UNDP projections indicate that about 90 million women in Africa could be food-starved by 2050. While evidence shows that women are bearing the brunt of climate change, they can also play a crucial role in climate change mitigation, adaptation and resilience. Women and girls are essential, effective and powerful leaders to address the climate crisis. But they remain largely undervalued and underestimated with limited access to training and the technology necessary for effective adaptation to the impacts of climate change. There is a very simple and effective solution. Put women and girls in the lead. That was the Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed talking about the importance of women in leadership and as solution implementers uh, for the climate crisis. And talking about women leaders, you met some. Oh, actually, for the second time, you met you met a legend today, right? 
I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's Mary Robinson, the first woman president of Ireland, a former United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, and now she is the chairperson of the Elders, which is a group of distinguished former leaders, and that group was founded by Nelson Mandela. Oh, she was also UN Special Envoy on Climate. She's at COP27 because she's involved in efforts to get more women in leadership positions. Frankly, there are not enough of them, she says. And we discussed that family photo, that discussion of where are the women? So many women said to me, is this the 21st century? So we're looking for parity, you know, gender parity, but we don't mean just numbers, we mean also women at the highest level. Uh, that is really important and increasingly important because we need transformative decisions at that level. And, you know, all men together aren't going to make them. <laughs> Having men in those positions, what do you think they miss? What do you think that they won't be getting? They won't be getting the kind of messaging that, you know, the elders got. We, we, we saw the messaging from... Um, a whole range of women and girls in Africa before COP27. They came up with 27 demands, and the elders are strongly supporting that the COP should be more inclusive of women and girls, that there should be far more acknowledgement of the gender discriminations in, in the climate crisis, the need for uh, gender disaggregated data, the need for gender finance, um, and just right across the board. There's a promise to double adaptation of climate finance by 2025. That's extraordinarily important to women because they're doing so much on the ground to build communities. The loss and damage suffered by women and girls is disproportionately, you know, terrible. It's very rude to talk about age, but your organisation is called The Elders. Yes. And you have a very long-standing association with the UN and, and as yes. a former head of state, you've got a huge network of contacts, which I'm sure you, you work to uh, push forward this, this agenda of helping women and girls. What kind of conversations have you been having with high-level figures? What are they telling you? We were worried um, about a possibility of diluting 1.5 degrees. Uh, it's still not fully secure, either here or I think in um, the uh, G20, which is just opening now in Bali. And uh, I was part of a broad coalition um, of 200 companies and a whole range of civil society groups um, to say we must hold to the 1.5, not as a target, but as a limit of warming for our world, a limit. Because 1.5 will be catastrophic yeah, in itself. in itself, yeah. And that's one of the things we learned from that first report in 2018 of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Every tiny bit of a degree is going to matter hugely, especially to prevent tipping points from arriving. And all of that would affect women and girls far more. So we work with all kinds of partners. We also have a strong, uh, as elders, a very strong women, uh, gender equality and women's leadership component in our um, climate work. And I'm working with a lot of other women leaders now um, to start a women-led broader movement, to link with everybody else, but make it women-led. Because actually we understand the problems on the ground. You know, we, we have much more empathy for them. We have much more realisation of just how real they are and just how strongly the gender divide of those problems needs to be taken into account. We are devising a feminist approach. We're, we're choosing the dandelion as our symbol. The dandelion is the only flower weed that grows on all seven continents. It's um, very resilient. You can't get rid of the damn thing. <laughs> and um, poets write about it and sometimes found food and things. And how do you uh, spread it? You go to spread it. So we want to spread the message about the urgency. 
uh, and we want governments in particular to listen. A lot of business, progressive business, gets the urgency as much as I do. That's why they came out so quickly to protect the 1.5 degrees. It's governments that are not stepping up. This is the cop on implementation, and they're not implementing it. Well, you've been a politician. You know what the pressures are like. Do you think it's a fact that you have to deal with so many short-term pressures that it's just too difficult? I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to get agreement amongst all the countries yeah. of the world. It's very hard, and the problem is it's short-term, and will I get re-elected if I take a stand? I think they underestimate. People now know we need longer-term big decisions. We need to fund them now. We even, and I often say this, we even need to spend our children and our grandchildren's money now so that they will have a safe world. Uh, and then they will have a much cheaper world because we'll be living on clean energy. So, you know, it makes sense. That was Mary Robinson, chairperson of the Elders, and of course, the first woman president of Ireland and the former United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. I also got to speak to someone who you know quite well, Michelle Lee, the founder of Women in Climate, which is a New York City-based charity. And how did you get involved in that? Well, she actually came to the UN headquarters and she gave us a little brief of, of what she does with her NGO, which is called Clever Carbon. And she uses carbon li literacy as a solution for climate action. And this is actually about knowing what's the carbon footprint of everyday things for example your coffee if you choose it with milk or without milk things that look like they're small but in the long run could make a big difference because it will make you more conscious about your carbon footprint but she told me that when she first started getting in the climate action space it was pretty unwelcoming to newcomers when I first uh, started attending climate events, it was very intimidating. Um, everyone was talking about like weird stuff like green hydrogen and the energy transition. I had no idea what that was about. Obviously now um, I do, but I want the climate transition and I want every women's climate journey to be easy and fun and joyful and supported by friends. We actually attract a lot of women who are already in climate and for those women we aim to elevate their voice and give them a platform to share their ideas and their climate solutions so that um, we have more diverse perspectives and we can accelerate climate action and climate solutions. When you say talk about safe space that implies that the space was not safe before. Can you explain why and how? I mean, not that it wasn't safe before, but you know, you walk into a networking event and it can be a lot of men in, you know, business suits and their, you know, VCs or investors. And if you're new to climate, no one wants to talk to you. So not that it wasn't a safe space, but uh, you know, we want it to be a welcoming and inclusive space. And also, you know, I think women have a higher tendency to be affected by climate anxiety. And so in a safe space from that perspective, we want to honor that, we want to recognize that, and that's why it's important for us to, to create a joyful space as well. Are women being adequately represented at this COP? No. I have been at many events where um, they could be all men panels, or, they call them mannels, don't they? Yes, they call them mannels. I didn't. I wasn't sure if I should bring that up because I, I don't want it to be offensive. That's not my point. My point is that we need diverse voices, and um, you know, having a woman host or moderate a panel is not the same as 
hearing their ideas and their solutions and their perspective. And one of the things with Women in Climate is we created a WhatsApp group. So this group was meant to keep the women who were traveling alone, you know, make sure they're safe, especially in a city where they're not familiar with or a country they're not familiar with. And this WhatsApp group was you know, originally 20 people, but I think the last I checked, it's like 140 people. Some of my colleagues are on it. Yes, exactly. Some of your colleagues are on it. And, you know, we're sharing events, sharing best practices, um, how to, you know, handle taxi drivers and how to stay safe. But we also talk about things like, you know, how do we get more women onto panels? So that's something that I'm really focused on and committed to for COP28. Tell me about the Wall of Hope. The idea behind the Wall of Hope is, you know, there were so many women, especially in the women in climate community and outside of that as well, that couldn't attend COP. Maybe their company wasn't coming, maybe they couldn't afford to come, maybe they didn't feel safe to come for, you know, various reasons. And so we still wanted their voice to be heard at this COP. So we created a wall of hope. So on our wall, um, on our website on women in climate, as well as our Instagram, um, every woman can basically, you know, state their hope. And it's still possible to add your voice to the wall? Absolutely. There's a form at the bottom and you can submit your information and we'll create uh, a tile for you and it will get added to the wall. And you can also share your personal tile on social media. That was Michelle Lee, founder of Women in Climate. Tomorrow is Energy Day, so we'll have lots to talk about. Energy, obviously, crucial to this whole discussion. The growth of renewables, for example, and ways that we can cut emissions. And before we go... A quick plug for a new product from one of our colleagues at the UN Environment Programme. It's called the COP Transformers Podcast, and it explores why the world is not delivering on the Paris Agreement and highlights the voices and perspectives of those fighting to keep the 1.5 target alive. The first vodcast is out, and it features the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Botswana and the Presidential Economic Advisor of Namibia. To find it, the simplest thing to do is just Google COP Transformers Podcast. That's what I did, and it's the first thing that you see. So that's it from me, and I guess that's it from you, Lara, because yet again, you've got to bang out another... Newsletter. ...award-winning newsletter. <laughs> By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my newsletter, I mean, sorry, the COP27 official United Nations newsletter, <laughs> please just Google that as well. COP27 UN newsletter. Uh, okay, yeah. Google The Lid Is On UN <laughs> podcast, and please, yes, like and subscribe. See you tomorrow.